looking a little bit at the life of Elijah, some of the significant events that stand out in his life, and we're going to continue that uh, tonight uh, from 1 Kings chapter 17, and we're going to read from verse 10. So it's 1 Kings chapter 17, reading from verse 10. And we read, So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small cake of bread for me from what you have made and bring it to me. And then make something from, for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. So she went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jug of flour, the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bread. Then he cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. Thank God again for his word that speaks fresh truth repeatedly into each of our lives and we're ready to hear and receive of it. Let's just come and let's pray together. Father, we come before you now and like Elijah, like that widow and like her son, we are a hungry people. We're a people who need to be fed by you. We're the people who need to have you meet the needs of our lives, the very deepest needs. We're the ones the people here who need you to speak to us and reveal yourself to us again. Father, as you have done repeatedly in their past, 
speak to your people now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week in our, our studies in Elijah, we discovered through the, the Lord's command to him to hide in Kirith and later to go to Sarephath, we discovered that the need in our lives to have an element of Kirith, that is of, of time alone, apart with the Lord. And yet also the need to have that element of Kirith sit within the context of a life of Zarephath, that is a life of involvement and ministry to the world as Elijah went to that town of Zarephath. And you know, it is vital to have that, that balance right in our lives between these two. For go too far to the care side, simply concentrate on, on a life of devotion maybe and of, of being with God's people in our context of being within church walls and ministries and organisations. Have that without attempting to give out in ministry what the Lord has poured in. And with that being the case, God will not continue to give us more of his life. If we don't use that which has already been given, and you know, even that which we have will through time just become dead and stagnant. On the other side though, if we concentrate on the Zarephath side, on involvement with the world, ministry and service to the world, without taking time to be with the Lord, then without the help and without the strength of God being poured into our lives, it will not be long before our ministry to the world ends up with us becoming of the world. You see, tragically, we won't help or change those who we're going to. It will be us who will be changed. We'll be changed by them and by the principles and values of this world that rule them. So we need them to get the balance right. We need to have elements of both Kirith and of Zarephath in our lives. Well, this week what we're going to do is we're going to move on. We're going to look here in this passage a bit more in detail at what Zarephath, what involvement and ministry to the world really actually means from, from this little passage here in 1 Kings 17. This incident involving really two main characters, Elijah, and this anonymous woman. Now you see, as the story is really a story of, of mutual ministry, it isn't only Elijah who helps and serves this woman, she too helps and serves him. Well, I think it's allowable and in fact advisable that we look at this event initially from the widow's angle. For I think that most of us will feel that we've got a lot more in common with her, the simple anonymous woman than perhaps with the great prophet, the man of God, Elijah. The, the first thing I want us to, to look at is really what I'd call a surprising ministry. For think of it, it must have been surprising indeed for this woman to realise that she was to be used of God in this kind of way. For think of her first of all, 
Think of her in her humility. Her humility. A woman so unimportant that her name is not even given. A woman who by virtue of the area that she lived in, we can be fairly sure, was not even an Israelite. Was not even by birth one of the people of God. Can you imagine then coming on the kind of thoughts that, that would go through her mind because we've, we've probably thought them about ourselves at times in life. You know, why should God choose me? More to the point, how can God choose me? Because there's nothing in me that's desirable. There's nothing about me that's particularly suitable to mark me out to be used as an instrument for a great and holy God. Think of her also in her desperation. For this woman, when Elijah came to her, she was in the process of preparing what she thought could well be the last meager meal for her and her son. Because when Elijah initially approaches her for food, she's got to tell him that she's got nothing to give. Absolutely nothing. And again, you can imagine her thoughts, surely, you know, what can I give to God? So what can God possibly want of me? I've got nothing. I've got no resources. There's nothing I have, nothing in me, nothing about me that he could ever possibly use. And again, how many of us have thought thoughts like these? Or maybe more to the point, are there any of us who have not probably at some point, and I'm sure for most of us, at many times in our life, have got to this same stage? What use am I to God? What can I possibly give that God could use? What can I ever possibly do for him? And yet, look, what do we find here? We find that as she by faith trusts in the Lord, responding to Elijah's call, that as she gives her little, we find that by miracle, that little becomes more than enough. For she's able to meet Elijah's need, her own need, her son's need for an awful lot more than one single meal. Now, this widow's example, in this, I believe, there is a lesson, probably I'm saying miraculously, there are lessons for us all to learn that we can learn. First of all, just the basic fact that God might want to call us, some of us, into surprising ministries. For too many of us, are inclined to write ourselves off. Like this woman, we protest in our own way that we're too humble, we're too weak, that we simply couldn't be used. We've not got the resources to be of any service to God and his people. Well, I want to say to you, if you find yourself inclined to think that way about yourself, then think again of the example of this woman. For no one could possibly have been humbler or poorer than her, than she was. And yet, here is Elijah called her, and as she responded, God used her. Think of that. And then listen to the wonderful words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, 27. It's one of my, my favourite verses. But it says... God chose what is foolish in the world 
to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world, even the despised things, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You see, it wasn't a one-off. This ministry given to this woman, though it was undoubtedly a surprise to her. No, it wasn't. In fact, this is God's normal. This is God's usual way of working. This is God's way. God works through people and through things that in the world's eyes are foolish, weak and despised. Why? Well, so that we who are worked through cannot take the credit or should not take the credit or become in any way proud about what we've done because we know that in ourselves we could never have done what we've done. It's only been possible with the help of God and also so that the world around us, the people around us, as they too realise that what we are doing is way beyond any ability we have as people. So do then. Their eyes begin to be opened up to the reality of God and the glory of God as they see God so clearly working in us or work through us. Another lesson I believe that we can learn from the experience of this woman is, is what I would see as the the bare essentials we need before we can, with confidence, move into an area of service, an area of ministry for the Lord. And looking at our experience, I would say there are two things at least that we need. The first is a sign, a token in some way of the gift that would be required for that area of service. But remember, remember here, this woman did initially have herself a little bit of food. She had a little, but it was only a little. And in the same way, we only have to have the first sign of a gift. There only has to be its beginning, the first little shoot rising up before we move into a ministry. We see that, you know. Because some of us are, are very hard on ourselves, there are times when we, we have to actually ask others. We have to ask those who are close to us. We have to ask those who know us if maybe they can see that gift. For others can see for what it is, that which we in our fear and maybe our modesty, what we're inclined to write off, other people see it. But you know, I think there are times when, when our exploration has to go even a stage further. There are times when neither we nor anyone else is really sure about the, the reality of a gift within us. I think at this stage, there are times when we, we've really just got to experiment. We've just got to take that first tentative step. Just offer up what we believe is something in that area of ministry to see whether we really are actually gifted and able or can become able for the area of ministry that maybe despite ourselves, maybe against our own will, we feel drawn and attracted to. And this brings me to the second, I think, supremely important requirement that we need 
before we can move into a ministry. And that is, we need to know we are called of God before we can expect to fulfill a ministry. This woman heard Elijah's call, heard God's call through him. But before we can expect to see our little turned into more than enough by the grace of God, before we can expect or hope to know miracles worked within us and worked through us, we need to know that we are called of God. How do we know? How do we know that when we're called of God? Well, I believe that the inner witness of the Holy Spirit is important here. That is that sense. You, you know deep within yourself. There's a restlessness in your spirit. And you know that you're being led in a certain direction. Or you feel that you are. That you're being led into a particular area of ministry. Now this is something that, that might fill you with joy. Or it might fill you with fear. Depending on your personality and, and your reaction to the particular kind of ministry, you sense you're being called into. Because it might be the last thing that naturally in yourself you would feel attracted to. Though I do want to say that as though in obedience to God you answer his call, then though you might find that particular area of service unattractive at the beginning, and though you might find as you go on, you might find it demanding. Yet you know at the same time, as you're doing God's will, using your gifts, and being blessed by him in that, you still will find that that can fulfill you in a way that nothing else can. It might not be easy. It might not make you smile every day. But if you're doing what God has gifted you and called you to do, there is no greater fulfillment in life. And to the contrary, if instead though, you try and silence and resist this inner call. If you just try and shut it down, deny God, close your ears, then I want to say to you, all that you will know is a gnawing sense of guilt and of frustration in your life until you sort this out and until you give in to God. And yet, you know, although the inner witness of the Spirit is important, I want to say here, I don't believe that it is a foolproof way of knowing whether or not God has actually called us. It's not. Because you see, it's all too easy for us to confuse our desires and our will with God's call, God's voice to us. And we can even disguise that with a, a false sense of modesty. You know, yeah, I feel called, but surely God can't be calling little old me. All said, hoping to manipulate those who we feel can be manipulated into giving us their approval. You see, such is the, the kind of subtle and, and cunning nature of the human mind. But in this area, it might not be that simply we want to deceive others. We might even be guilty of trying to deceive ourselves. We can be guilty of self-deception. So you see, we need to test this inner cop they can get all tied up with our emotions and our desires. We need to test that by other external factors. Let me just suggest two. We could do more, but two. First, we need to test that by the Word of God. We need to look and to see in God's Word 
whether what we feel claimed to be led into has got any basis in God's Word to see if it in any way ties up with, is in line with the principles and priorities of God that are revealed in His Word. Also, we have to, to check and see whether we've got any more indirect indication from God's Word. For instance, we might claim that God is, is speaking to us about something through His Word. That he's bringing verses to us, bringing reading to us, that they seem to back up our sense of calling and back up that direction that we feel God is leading us in life. Well, I say to you, we've got to test this. We've got to hold it up to real scrutiny. For example, is what we are claiming God is saying to us through his word a reasonable interpretation of the word of God? Or are we twisting the word of God to get it to say what we want to say. And starting this, going on in the, the same kind of direction, another important test, I believe, of a call is to test a call by the counsel of wise Christian friends. And I know we've spoken about this before, but let me say it again. That when we've got big decisions to make in life, when we feel we're at a crossroads in some way in life, whether this is related to, to God's call directly or not, I believe when we get to those points, we should bring this before wise and mature Christians who we know and who we trust. People who we know will do what Ephesians 4.15 says needs to be done. People who will speak the truth to us, but do it in love. People who will tell us how things actually are, what they really see, who in a loving way will not be afraid to say no to us and not just say what we want them to say. And we need to tell them. We need to give them all the evidence we have that, that backs up what we sense. And then we need to ask them, be honest, does this seem right to you? Do you see this in my life? Can you sense this is right? Even maybe has God been speaking in the same way to you about me? And when we've gathered all of this information, we need to be very careful and very, very sure before we disregard it, before we fly in the face of it. So there is then, I think, a lot to be learned as far as ministry and service for God is concerned from the example and from the experience of this widow. But you know, let's not leave poor old Elijah out <coughs> completely. I mean, so he is in this story. And I believe... There's a very important lesson in this whole area of ministry and service we can learn from him as well. For we can see Elijah here, maybe as a representative of those of us who tonight perhaps are fairly sure of what our ministry is. And maybe we're relatively strong in the faith. We might not be prepared to actually verbalise that, vocalise it, but, but we know that. Of course, in many ways, we're still weak. We've got areas of weaknesses every human being has. But taken overall, in comparison maybe to the average, we'd have to recognise that we do come out as strong. What I want you to take note of is the fact that Elijah here, gifted and strong as he undoubtedly was, 
still was open to and received ministry from this woman. Weak and humble and despised as she was. Now, there's actually nothing really all that surprising in that. Because that's what the Bible continually teaches in the Old Testament, but particularly it teaches this in the New. That the strong do minister to the weak. Yes, they do. Of course they do. But also, and not to be missed, is the fact that the weak too are called to minister to the strong. That the weak also can be channels of God's grace. They can be that in very simple, practical ways, but they can also be that in beautiful, spiritual ways. It's through the lessons that the supposedly weak can teach many of us about trust and dependency and humility through what they can stimulate from us and from others in terms of love and compassion and mercy. You see, the strong and the weak belong together and should depend on one another. Woe betide us when we think that we are too strong to be ministered to us. And you know, when you get right down to it, when you really look at it, at different times, in different ways, all of us are strong and all of us are weak. At different times, in different ways in our life, that's true of us all. But it is a tragedy. If we ever reach the stage where we believe that we are just too strong and others are just too weak, too humble to be possibly of any use to us, that's a tragedy. Because remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 5. Blessed are the meek and humble, for they will inherit the earth. We've got to remember that. And there's no greater fool than someone who is unwilling to receive from others. Anyway, we've looked at this woman's surprising ministry. Let's move on just a little briefly at a, a sickening event. And you know, it doesn't take too long to trace down just what the sickening event in, in this woman's life was. For suddenly, right in the, the midst of her emerging ministry, our time in our life when surely she feels that what she's doing pleases God in a way that she has never done before. She seems to be there, right in the very centre of God's will, doing His work. And then suddenly, tragedy strikes. Her son takes ill, and then he dies. And this woman's newfound, deeper trust and faith in God is shattered. Shattered. And there can be little doubt that Elijah must have been surely tested as well. For you see, this woman had had so little. She was husbandless, a terrible thing in that time and culture. She was poverty-stricken. As a result of that. And yet the little she'd had. She'd given that in faith to God. She'd given everything. But now. That which was most precious to her. The only thing that really she had in life. Which was of any real worth. Her son. Her beloved son. Is cruelly taken from her. As she's serving God. 
And so now this woman, she begins to doubt. She begins to doubt in God himself. See verse 18. What have you against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? You see, it seems as if this woman, to her, as if her very worst suspicions arose when Elijah had first come to her. They've now been realized. For remember, he'd come He'd come just after condemning in God's name the people of Israel to drought and famine and death because of their sin. So maybe, you know, she was thinking. She'd always known that she was too weak, too sinful to be really able to please the Lord and to serve him. And so, despite maybe the initial appearance, despite maybe the way her hopes had been raised, Despite it all, Elijah hadn't come to bring her the news that he, she was ready and able to serve God. No, instead, he'd come to bring the news of God's judgment to her. And all that had happened up to this point had been just a cruel joke that God and his servant had played upon her. How many people are there who get to that kind of point, that place with that woman, of thinking that life is just something of a horrible, cruel joke. People who get to that place of utter despair and utter despondency in life. That time, that place we arrive at sometimes as God's people, at a time when, like this woman, we're, we're totally immersed in doing what we believe is the work of God. We're involved in the service of God. Maybe like her, we started out a little timidly, but it looks as if God's blessing. We feel certain we're doing His will. But then, disaster strikes. Things fall apart. Life falls apart. And like this woman, we're left crushed and wondered what the will of God is and whether we will ever feel again that we know his will. Like her, we stand with our confidence in ourselves, maybe in our fellow Christians, in the Lord. Above all, our confidence shattered and broken. Well, let's look finally at how that confidence here was wonderfully brought back together again as we finish by looking at a secret revealed for a secret is revealed to this woman in her heartbreak. How it's revealed to her? Well, it's, it's revealed to her through the actions of Elijah. And notice these are not the actions of a totally strong and confident, faithful man. They're not. And what this tells us is that even the strongest and most faithful can be thrown into confusion and fear when faced by the ultimate tragedies of life. So Elijah takes this woman's dead son and when he's alone with him he cries out in desperation, verse 20 Oh Lord my God have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with by ca causing her son to die. And then he stretches himself out on this boy three times and he prays the only prayer that's possible in this situation. The only prayer that can make any difference. But where there is death, God might bring life. Elijah prays then 
for the miracle that is above all miracles and by the mercy and grace of God that prayer is answered this boy is resurrected now the number of resurrections that we find in the Bible are very very few and that's certainly true of the Old Testament it's true of the New but it's certainly true of the Old Testament so I think we can safely say then that any that actually do occur have got a real significance attached to them. God brought about these events here then. In this woman's life, in Elijah's life, in this boy's life, I believe, to teach us something. What is it? What is it that through these events and this miracle that God wants to reveal? Well, it is, I believe, the fact that although God does judge particular sin, gross sin, when it's in our lives. As he did here in the, the case of the people of Israel through this trial. He did that. Yet, God does not withhold his mercy ever from those who turn to him in repentance and faith and trust. And then, once we're in that place with him, once we're in that kind of relationship with him, although every sin is a horror still in God's eyes, yet God does not strike at his people maliciously or anybody because of a minor slip that we make. God doesn't do that. He doesn't slap us down. He isn't a vicious vengeance-seeking God. And he certainly does not hit out at others for our wrongs. God doesn't do that because God above all is a God of perfect justice. And yet, things do sometimes go disastrously wrong, don't they? Maybe just after we've committed some minor misdemeanor. Or even when we've done nothing and are just working away faithfully serving God. We see that in people's lives. We don't understand. Suddenly in the midst of service, we're struck down. You see, what I believe God is saying then, through this incident here, as he brings this boy back to life in that very kind of situation, is that things like this aren't part of any particular judgment of God on any particular sin of ours, but that rather they are part of the general consequences of man's sin. Man's sin, our sin, that sin that allowed Satan to gain his stronghold in this world. Our sin that then threw the whole of creation into disarray and that as part of its consequences made disease and hardship and suffering and ultimately death part of daily human experience. And these consequences of sin, this power of Satan now rages like a, a wild beast in this world. And so because of this, disaster and tragedy and death do happen indiscriminately and seemingly unfairly in this life, in our world. But please, God doesn't will them. God doesn't make them happen. No, he doesn't because Satan and sin take all the credit for that. It's all because of sin and the power of Satan. But God does allow these things to happen 
because he can do no other, because he's a just God. And these are the just consequences of the sin of this world that we all, each one of us, in part, are responsible for. But see, what God is saying to us here, though, through the resurrection, I believe, of this boy, is that when, as we serve him, tragedy and disaster strike, then don't lose faith. Don't stop serving. Don't give up. Because what God says is, one day, Jesus is going to put everything right. The resurrected Jesus. If not in this time, in this age, yet still one day, at the end of this age, Jesus is going to right every wrong. That's the promise of the resurrection of this boy. Above all, that's the promise that the resurrection of Jesus Christ holds out to us. That one day, every wrong is going to be put right. That's the secret God up here, I believe, is sharing with us symbolically as he raises this boy to life. So here we have this woman then, unknown, anonymous, humble and poor. And yet someone who's so much to teach us about ministry and service and living the Christian life. About ministry and how to find out what our ministry actually is. About ministry and about the tragedies of life. And how to keep going when those tragedies strike and the secret of God's final victory shared with us in order to keep us going in this world no matter what comes our way. And you know, God didn't let this woman down. And he won't let us down either. Because the God we trust in is the God of resurrection power and of infinite love. Let's pray together. <coughs> Father, we want to thank you again for your faithful love to each one of us. Thank you that you are our risen God, our mighty God, and that you're ready to work in each life here. Maybe there are people here tonight who feel broken because of what life's brought their way. They feel that life is so unjust. Lord, we all suffer because of sin, but Lord, help us to see that you're a just God and that you're the God who's with us. You're the God who loves us. You're the God who can heal us and raise us up again. Help us to come. That you might fill our lives once more with your power and your love. In Jesus' name. Amen.